perverse cats have been enjoying themselves on our back lawn again with their orgies. It's becoming a regular occurrence now. They did used to take a couple of nights off during the week to rest, no doubt. But now it's every flipping night. They usually start around 11 o'clock. Often it's just after I've taken Mama a cocoa through and I've settled down with my book. That's when they really get going. Scuffling about, jigging away and shrieking and wailing in ecstasy. What a din! Or very distracting when you're trying to read your Shirley Conran. There are so many of them now. Nine at last count and usually different cats each time. Though we've noticed the Ginger Tom is always there. My John says he must be the ringleader, the host of their feline sex soirees. He's a cocky little sod, though. Make no mistake, you should see him. All that bravado, strutting around, helping himself to all his ladies, like Caligula in cat form. Thankfully, it doesn't always last very long. We have the steady build-up, call it feline foreplay, if you will, then ten minutes or so of orgiastic tomfoolery, and then all of a sudden the party's over. I usually have a look out the window once it's quiet, just to check they haven't trampled my busy lizzies during their cavorting. I half expect them to all lay around smoking cigarettes after all that erotic exertion, but thankfully they usually flee the scene straight after they've, you know, finished. That'll be the tomcat, no doubt, wanting his harem out the way once he's had his fun with them. Typical man. And all this cat frolicking, well, it hasn't exactly helped the situation between John and I, I can tell you. In fact, if anything, it's made things even more awkward between us. I mean, once that lot get going, we suddenly find that we have one rather large elephant in the room. You see, John and I haven't partaken in any downstairs activities in months. Not since the pandemic. Well, long, long before the pandemic. It's finding the time, though. I mean, John works very long hours, and I don't want to be putting any sort of pressure on him. He's usually so tired when he gets home. So he can do without my raging libido flaring up the minute he walks through the door. And I don't suppose it helps matters having Mum in the spare room. We wouldn't really be able to go for it even if we wanted to. Not that John and I have ever been massive sex enthusiasts, but we did used to enjoy the occasional dabble. On a Friday evening after Gardener's World, a glass of Pinot and an hour of Monte Don and, well, a girl gets ideas. But all that's a very distant memory now, unfortunately, because sex-wise, the well has been decidedly dry for some time now. During my last session, my therapist Helen asked if John and I had made any progress on the old sex front. So I told her no, unfortunately. I said that I was obviously feeling quite disheartened about the situation, but that I'd come to realise that sex wasn't the be-all and end-all of a marriage. Helen said this was a very healthy attitude to take. I thanked her for those kind words of support, and I told her how important it was that I maintain a sense of proportion. I mean, I do have other interests in life. I can't be sitting about pining for intercourse like a nymphomaniac Alsatian. Then she asked if I was missing the sex at all. And so I said, hell yes, too effing right I am. I said, missing, more like yearning, love. It's all I can think about. I said, 
I've never used such base words before, Helen, and I don't like myself saying this, but basically, I'm gagging for it. Helen gasped when I said this, and she made a note. Then I told her how I feared that all this pent-up sexual energy was beginning to turn me into some sort of lech. For instance, I've recently found myself erotically drawn to our butcher, the one with the lazy eye and the lisp, you know the one. And the other day, I found myself giving him a saucy little wink, completely out of nowhere. God knows where that came from. He winked back, well, as best he could with his lazy eye. It took him about two minutes to complete the manoeuvre. I did wonder what he was doing at first, but then partway through, he confirmed that he was, in fact, you know, trying for a wink. So I waited it out. Then I thanked him and scurried off with my lamb shanks. Had to get John's dinner started post-haste. But, you know, in all honesty, I think I'm basically craving the touch of another human being. And it's starting to become very apparent, not just to me, but to others. Like last week, for example, while at the salon, my hairdresser started rubbing conditioner into my scalp and I actually purred. It was a rather loud, prominent sort of purr. The whole salon must have heard it. I think those cats must be really getting to me. Helen made a note when I told her this. The mention of the purr obviously set off alarm bells. She's probably got me pegged as some sort of potential sex pest now. Probably thinks I have unrequited designs on my hairdresser. But I mean, hardly. Aside from the fact that the girl's my hairdresser, she's not really my type, being female and everything. Not that there's anything wrong with ladies liking ladies, not at all. And John and I have always been very liberal-minded on that front. In fact, the lady who grouted our wet room was herself a fully qualified lesbian. A big one at that. But, you know, I can't deny there was a certain erotic charge the moment my hairdresser got going on me with that conditioner. So, who knows, maybe I do have some latent lesbian tendencies hidden away somewhere, or maybe it was just the conditioner with its exotic aroma, awakening something primal within me. So then Helen said that if John wasn't able to fulfil my needs, then perhaps I might consider alternative means. Then she told me all about sex toys. She said that they're very discreet these days, and that they could provide a very satisfactory alternative while I wait for John to buck up his ideas in the bedroom. In fact, Helen was saying that the experience of using a vibrator was so agreeable for one of her clients that she actually divorced her husband and married the vibrator. They celebrate their third wedding anniversary in September, apparently. The mind boggles. Well, I thanked Helen for the suggestion but I couldn't really see me using a sex toy somehow. And I've never been big on gadgets. I mean, they're all well and good when you first buy them, but then you stick them in a cupboard after five minutes and they just end up collecting dust. It's the spiralizer all over again. And besides, when would I ever get the chance to use a sex toy with mum around? I can't even go for a wee without the Spanish Inquisition. So then Helen suggested that instead... I could perhaps surprise John with a nice, dirty weekend. Somewhere romantic, far away from the stresses of John's work and 
beady-eyed mum and those smutty sex cats taunting us with their carnal cavorting. But you know, she'd actually hit on something here and I didn't think it was a bad idea at all. And obviously now we've had Freedom Day, we're more or less permitted to go and roam free again, aren't we? In fact, it's encouraged. So I booked us a surprise weekend in Bournemouth. The hotel was Helen's suggestion, the Grand Hotel de Seshu. She said it was a sort of special type hotel, just for grown-ups. I had a look online and the rooms looked very nice and the beds were huge. So I thought there'd be plenty of space for me and John to really spread out and relax. I was sold. So I booked right away. I thought, Bournemouth, here we come. John was over the moon when I sprang the surprise on him. I did it last minute and told him on the Friday morning, just as he was packing his briefcase for work. Then he looked over at Mum, who was sat at the kitchen table, sucking on her muesli, and he lowered his voice and asked, What about you-know-who? Don't worry, I said. Mum knows all about it, and she'll be staying here to look after the house. Mum chirped up. Yes, don't mind me. Just leave me alone while you two heathens go off and fornicate in the streets of Bournemouth. I said, Mum, you're being silly. John and I won't be doing anything of the sort in Bournemouth. John looked at me with a glint in his eye, and he whispered, Won't we? That's a shame. He was flirting, and it felt wonderful. We had a nice, special little moment there, which was marred ever so slightly by the sound of Mum slurping the milk from her muesli. I think she passed wind at that point as well. It's the hazelnuts. They always set her off. But anyway, the main thing was that our dirty little weekend was all set to go ahead. And how thrilled I was to be packing that day. Honestly, I packed those bags with vim and I bought some saucy underwear, especially for the trip. These lacy little pants, well, not so much pants, they were more sort of bloomers. My neighbour Carol makes them using old doilies that have been donated by local nuns. She said they'd be certain to get John in the mood because they hark back to the Victorian era, which she said was a saucier, carefree time of easygoing sex and virtue. I took her word for it. She knows her onions when it comes to sex, being an active nymphomaniac. And then, would you believe it, she tried flogging me a chastity belt to go with it. She suggested I might pop it on on the Friday morning and have John remove it when we arrive at the hotel. You know, to add an element of anticipation to the whole event. I quite liked the idea, but it didn't seem very practical to me. I mean, suppose I had the call of nature somewhere along the M3 and we needed to stop off. I'd have to sit there cross-legged while John fumbled about looking for the key. And what if there was a problem with the lock and we couldn't take the ruddy thing off? Imagine explaining that one to emergency services. So I said, no thank you, Carol. Let's just leave it at the bloomers. I'd finished packing by lunchtime and John somehow managed to wangle the afternoon off so we were able to get going by one o'clock. Of course, Mum was playing the martyr as we loaded the car. She complained about how we were abandoning her, a poor, defenceless old lady. I didn't take any notice of her and anyone who knows Mum will know that she is far from defenceless. 
we eventually set off on our journey and I can tell you it was filled with sexual energy. We both knew what was on the agenda for the weekend and neither one of us could wait to get there. I partook in a little dirty talk as John drove and he loved it. It was really getting him going. I kept saying things like, Oh, John, this dashboard is so dusty. What a naughty man you are for letting it get so, oh, unkempt. John encouraged me to carry on. So I did. I was loving it as much as he was. I said, oh, John, I just love the glossy oak finish on the handle of the glove compartment. It's ever so high end. Carry on, he said. Carry on. So I did. I said, and the speck of your stereo system is phenomenal. Bluetooth. Dab. 4G access with Spotify and Apple Music. At that point, John quickly pulled the car over. I have to have you now, he said. I can't wait for Bournemouth. I said, John, no. Believe me, I want this as much as you do, but waiting will make it so much better. Think of the delayed gratification. He said he knew where I was coming from and it made perfect sense to wait. But he said he really couldn't hang on. So he asked if I'd mind if we stopped off at a little chef so he could go and relieve himself. I said, John, darling, no, you must wait. And anyway, I said, I think Little Chef went into administration years ago, joining the likes of the dearly departed Woolies and CNA. John gasped at this point and he said, You're turning me on even more now. I said, How is listing defunct retailers turning you on? He said, I don't know. It just is. Then he cried out, Say some more. I'll make a start. Rumbelows, Bee Jam. Now your turn. I said, John. Pull yourself together for crying out loud. Honestly, I didn't care for this new fetish you seemed to have acquired at all. It was very dark and most unbecoming. So he started the car up and we carried on with the journey, which was now sullied by John's twisted new fetish. Where the hell he unleashed that from, I do not know. By the time we reached Bournemouth, the heavens had opened it was absolutely lashing it down, so that was dampening the mood a little. Plus, I'd started with one of my heads, which wasn't exactly making me feel very saucy. The hotel was lovely, though, just off the seafront down this leafy little side street. Very inviting from the outside. It had real curb appeal. Once inside, the staff were really accommodating. The lady on the front desk couldn't have done any more for us. In fact, to be honest, I found her a little bit overbearing. Babs was her name. Northern, mid-fifties, a gigantic bust. And she said everything with a sort of nervous giggle. So once she got chuckling, that chest of hers just carried on and on and on like a giant trifle. John was mesmerised by it. Babs advised us to be prompt for dinner at seven o'clock. She said Friday nights are very special at the Grand Hotel de Sechu. And it sounded pretty special, I can tell you. There were oysters on the menu. Yum! So we went and settled into our room, 
which was very nice. We were in the Burton and Taylor suite. Apparently all the rooms were named after famous couples in history. So across the hall was the Romeo and Juliet suite. Next door to that was the Antony and Cleopatra suite. And next door to us was the Richard and Judy suite. Bang up to date. But I just could not shift my headache at all. So John and I refrained from making love that afternoon. And I wanted to be well enough for dinner. So I had a snooze while John popped the telly on. We were both quite taken aback by the number of adult channels there were. And broadcasting in the afternoon as well. I mean... Do people watch those kinds of programmes all day long? I suppose it'd be regarded as daytime television for the perverse. Anyhow, I asked John to change the channel as all that orgasmic shrieking was playing havoc with my head. We were down for dinner by 6.45. The dining hall was lovely and recently redecorated too. Babs told us this as she seated us at our table. She gave us a little giggle as she was telling us all about it her chest bobbing about as if she had two giddy bald heads in her bra. John and I were first into the dining room, and as we were, Bab said that qualified us to have the special pointing stick. Well, I was very intrigued by this, as was John. Babs then said that it was a big honour to be given the pointing stick at the Grand Hotel de Seshu, and we'd now have the pleasure of getting to choose. Choose what? I asked. Something off the menu? Sure, said Babs, with a slight frown. Why not? <laughs> and then she bounced off to greet some more guests, leaving John and I completely in the dark. Dinner was served promptly at 7.15. We had three courses, all delicious. Those oysters were to die for. Mum kept calling me on my mobile all the way through dinner, but I was determined to enjoy myself. So I ignored her, thought I'd call her back later after dinner, before John and I got down to business in our room. After the dessert bowls were cleared away, John and I got up to head back to our room, both of us now feeling rather randy after the oysters. Well, that's when Babs came dashing over to us. Where are you going? she asked. We explained that we were off to bed, but she said, Oh no, you can't! The party's just beginning! Well, John and I were quite puzzled by this, but then we just assumed there'd be a disco, and to be honest, the idea of a bit of a boogie seemed rather agreeable. So we sat back down again and waited for the DJ to arrive. Well, we assumed there would be one. Babs then ran to the front of the room and banged a gong to get everyone's attention. I thought that was a little over the top, to be honest. Scared me after death. But nothing prepared me for the horror that was to come. Babs then beckoned John and I over to join her at the front of the hall. Well, we were both baffled by this. John turned to me and said, What shall we do? So I said, Well, we'll have to get up, won't we? Can't really do anything else. So we did. And we walked to the front. Babs asked us to bring the pointing stick with us. So we did. Didn't have a clue why, though. Not at this point. The whole thing seemed very perplexing to us. As soon as we reached the front and joined Babs, my mobile pinged from my handbag, so I pulled it out. This time it was a text from Mum. Its content was very troubling. It said, 
leave immediately. I've Google translated Grand Hotel de Sechu and it's Corsican for Big Sex Hotel. Well, I was horrified. Even more so when Babs asked us to use the pointing stick to choose the couple we wanted to take up to our room to have a sexy time with. Yeah, unfortunately, it seemed that we'd booked ourselves into a swingers hotel. On Helen's advice, I might add. So thank you very much, Helen. Well, John and I were very red-faced at this point as we looked out onto all of those frighteningly keen couples looking our way, fidgeting about and throwing us winks. So we explained that they'd obviously been the most unfortunate mix-up and we said that we really were just here to have a romantic weekend. Babs interjected, Oh, well, that's what everyone wants here, she said. I clarified that it was more of a two-person arrangement that we had in mind, as opposed to the kinky free-for-all that appeared to be on offer here at the Grand Hotel de Sechu. Babs tried to persuade us to stay, but to be honest, we were far too embarrassed to hang around. So we scooted back up to our room, quickly packed our bags and left. So much for the romantic weekend in Bournemouth. We arrived home at midnight, and by now, Mum was fast asleep in her room. We went to bed. Both of us were exhausted. Sex was the last thing on either of our minds at that point, I can tell you. But later, as I lay there in bed, still wide awake, listening to the rain pattering on the window, I got to thinking that now would have been the ideal time for John and I to have a go, so to speak. Well, the more I thought about it, the more interested in the idea I became. I couldn't hear any snoring coming from John's side of the bed, so I said, John? Yeah? he said in a semi-playful sort of tone. I said, are you fully awake, darling? Yes, darling, he said, fully. So I said, I can't sleep at all. Neither can I, he said. Got any ideas how we could tire ourselves out? Oh yes, I said, I think so. And I really don't know what on earth came over me, but months of pent-up mischief suddenly drove me to pounce on John like a wild animal. I really went for it, I can tell you. Oh, yes. But after a minute or so of me writhing about on top of John, whispering sweet nothings and licking his ears to try and arouse him, I noticed that John wasn't really responding the way I'd hoped he would. There were no telltale signs of arousal, if you get my meaning. So I stopped and I asked him if there was a problem. He said he was just tired, said he was keen that we make love as it had been far too long. Well, these words were music to my ears and I was so happy that at last we were on the same page. So I asked if there was anything I could do to get him more in the mood. He looked me in the eye and he said, Allied carpets, rackhams, do it all. Here we go again, I thought. This was obviously some sort of dirty talk to John. And though I didn't like this particular new fetish of his, I could tell that it was getting him going. So I took the bat on. Dewhurst the Butchers, I said. John Menzies. Index. Catalogue shop. 
Yes, shrieked John. He was loving it. And then we started to kiss passionately and things were really hotting up now. But just as John was about to remove my nightie, all of a sudden we heard this almighty commotion coming from the back garden. Squeaking, squawking, squealing, it was awful. John leapt out of bed and ran to the window to look out. Those bloody cats, he said. There's a garden full of them. I got up and joined him at the window and sure enough, there they all were, jigging away again on the lawn. There must have been at least 20 of them this time, thrashing and bashing away. Two o'clock in the morning. How inconsiderate. But I was still very much in the mood for mischief. So I pleaded with John to try and ignore the cats and I started massaging his shoulders and called out defunct retailers again in a bid to try and arouse him. Comet, I shouted. Bieber, Barrett's shoes, the jolly giant. Unfortunately, I was wasting my breath. John was just far too distracted to get back in the mood. Those Bastard cats and their perverse cavorting had once again put the scuppers on my shag. Ah, oh, eventually I gave up, got back into bed and we fell asleep after yet another disappointingly sexless night. The whole of the next day I reflected on our situation and how unlikely it was looking that John and I would ever rekindle the flames of our passion. I mean, something just always comes up. Well, something, <laughs> not John though. His work, nosy mum, those filthy fornicating felines. I just had to accept that John and I are probably never going to do it ever again. But where does that leave me? I still have needs, I still have desires. There's still one almighty itch that needs scratching. So where can I go to scratch it? And then I remembered... My friend Wendy told me about this brilliant living museum she'd been to. You know, one of those places where they take buildings from different bits of history and they reconstruct them in the grounds. So there's a row of terraced houses from the war and a 1970s house with an orange kitchen. There's a miners' institute, all sorts of buildings. And in this particular one, I seem to remember... She said they'd reconstructed a Woolworths. I'm taking your new fetish, John, I thought, and I am running with it. So I've arranged a little trip for this weekend. Who needs the Grand Hotel de Seshu, eh? Introducing the amazing record vacuum by Bronco. I thought I would prime him by playing him a load of adverts from Ronco on YouTube whilst proffering a massive bag of pick and mix Get in! And if that doesn't do the trick, those cats had better watch out! We're getting a bloody dog! Life's a Gas was written by Ben Ellis and performed by Sarah Starling. Like, share, subscribe and leave us a review. Why not?
thanks for listening. 